Hello, and welcome to today's seminar on re rediscovering partition from new perspectives. I am Chelsea Farrell, the Assistant Director at the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University. The mission of the Institute is to engage through interdisciplinary research to advance and deepen the understanding of critical issues relevant to South Asia and its relationship with the world. As part of this mission, the Institute is sponsoring today's event that will explore how new research efforts help us to understand the full depth of the history and legacy of partition. Before we get started, we have a couple of housekeeping items for today. During the question and answer session, you can submit questions directly to moderators via the Q&A function on Zoom. There will be a short survey automatically sent to you at the end of the session. We would ask that you kindly fill this out. Finally, today's session will be recorded. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce the moderator of today's panel, Dr. Jennifer Leaning. Dr. Leaning is the Professor of the Practice of Health and Human Rights at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and a Senior Fellow at the Harvard FXV Center. Dr. Leaning has field experience in assessment of issues of public health, human rights, and international humanitarian law in a range of crisis situations. She has been studying the 1947 partition through the lens of forced migration and contemporary humanitarian approaches. Dr. Leaning, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Chelsea, and good day to everybody joining us. And uh, it's a big privilege to um, be moderating a discussion between um, two very thoughtful and distinguished colleagues. Uh, and I will introduce each of them now and then um, turn the floor over to the first. So uh, Professor Ian Talbot is a professor at the University of Southampton in Britain. Uh, he's director of the Center for Imperial and Postcolonial Studies there, and he has um, written probably more prolifically and profoundly about the uh, partition situation and uh, on both sides of the Punjab border and extending as well even to the um, eastern side of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, and our focus today is going to be particularly around the Punjab. So that will be the topic that um, Professor Talbot will be talking about. Uh, and the second very distinguished guest is Professor Yaku Bangash, who is a historian. Um, he uh, started out as being a historian rather than turning it to later in life. Um, and he is an expert in the politics and policies that relate to the Punjab, both sides. Um, and his perspective will be from Pakistan, but um, I know from experience, he was deeply steeped in the Indian side of this history as well. And uh, the, the way we will be proceeding is that um, I will turn the floor over to Professor Talbot. He will speak for about 10 to 15 minutes. I will then ask him a question and uh, he will reply in however robust a form he chooses. And then we will turn to Professor Bangash and he will talk uh, again, for 10 or 15 minutes, I'll have a question for him. He will reply. And then we will start again with um, a topic that Professor Talbot will be talking about. And then we'll move quickly to the topic that Professor Bangash will be talking about. And then we're going to mix it up and have the two of them talk back and forth with questions. And it's at that point that we'll also entertain questions from the audience. So uh, we are going to have a pretty solid introduction to the knowledge and judgment of these two um, really expert analysts of the situation of partition of British India 
1947, but also some of its antecedents and most particularly the consequences that have flowed uh, from that cataclysmic event. So it is my pleasure to introduce Professor Talbot and the floor is yours. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for this opportunity to uh, address the audience on uh, the issue of looking at partition from new perspectives. Um, I think the starting point really in terms of looking at partition is uh, what is the, st the current state of uh, the literature and also uh, what are the con current legacies of partition for uh, the subcontinent. And I think the first thing to bear in mind is that the literature has undergone uh, successive changes, particularly over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and it's looking more at the uh, lived experience of partition and the way in which ordinary lives were affected uh, by migration or even those who didn't migrate, their lives were affected uh, by the upheaval. And it's looking at some of these long-term cultural, socioeconomic uh, and psychological legacies uh, of partition for those people caught up in the event. Now, when I started uh, writing about partition uh, 40 odd years ago, the emphasis wasn't at all uh, on uh, the lived experience of partition. It was still really about what had caused it. Why did it happen? Uh, at the time that I began my research, there had been a shift from uh, looking at the high politics, as it was called, the constitutional negotiations, uh, which marked the final years of uh, British rule, more to the region uh, and to look at what was happening in the regions uh, that were divided. Uh, and particularly, of course, I was looking at Punjab. Other people were looking at regions like uh, Bengal, for example. And uh, also they were looking at areas which weren't divided, but were still uh, greatly affected by partitions, such as areas like Sindh for example, the work of Sarah Ansari in that uh, field. So that was the beginning, really, uh, of um, a movement in the, in the literature away from uh, perhaps uh, why partition happened in terms of the big individuals, Gandhi, Nehru, uh, Jinnah's role, and looking more at, at the regional politics, uh, which, uh, in a sense, were really important, because without the Muslim League breakthrough uh, in the Punjab region, which I was looking at in my research, then Pakistan might never have come into being. Uh, and uh, that was really a crucial question, which hadn't been fully explored uh, at the time that I began my research. So that, that was the beginning, really, of, of the, these uh, constant sort of changes in approach uh, and in focus of writings on partition. And it reflected, in a way, both changes in... Um, historical, uh, wider historiography, uh, but also the availability of new sources and the um, spreading out of the sources, moving away perhaps from just looking at documents, official documents to newspapers, to party records. When I was uh, looking at the breakthrough of the Muslim League in Punjab, I was looking at the Punjab Muslim League records, which are then held uh, in Karachi. Uh, and also we're looking at um, these developments from the locality uh, rather than necessarily from the national level. What has happened, of course, since then, certainly since the 1990s, as this, is this concern with what I've called the new history of partition or the history from below of partition, 
In other words, how were ordinary people uh, affected by, uh, firstly, violence, uh, but also uh, by those who uh, were able to safely relocate uh, across the new international borders, which, of course, split the two cities of Lahore and Amritsar, which were only about 50 kilometers apart from each other. So this new border uh, is created, uh, and, and the emphasis now is on how were people who crossed that border safely, how were they able to um, pick up the threads of their lives again? Um, what were the factors in terms of perhaps government assistance or in terms of their own, um, if you like, uh, self-resettlement? Uh, why did these factors uh, come into play, you know, in terms of um, their ability to self-settle? Some ended up in refugee camps. Other people quite quickly acquired property and re-established business life and activities and professional life. So immediately what you're getting there is the beginnings of a differential experience uh, of partition in which there are some who are victims who can't recover the losses, the psychological, the material losses uh, of partition and others who seem to be able to re-establish old patterns uh, of uh, work uh, and uh, indeed their fortune. Uh, and that's really, I think, uh, the way in which the literature has moved today, is looking at this differential aspect uh, of, of the long-term legacy of, of, of partition and resettlement. Uh, and it's uh, interrogating both official narratives, which were produced uh, by the government of India and the government of Pakistan about this whole rehabilitation process. And it's also interrogating to an extent uh, community narratives, uh, which uh, may establish a particular community dominant narrative. In Punjab, for example, uh, it's often uh, the fact that Punjabis as a whole, although there are these great differences uh, across caste, class and gender, in the experience of, of resettlement. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the dominant Punjabi refugee narrative is that uh, it was through enterprise, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, that Punjabis were able to recover uh, from partition. And sometimes this is juxtaposed with uh, the uh, constructed view, perhaps say of the Bengali, uh, who was less able to recover from uh, the ravages of partition because they lack this enterprise. Now, both uh, these official uh, and uh, community narratives of Punjabi exceptionalism uh, are really based uh, on the colonial stereotypes of Punjab, uh, which were internalized and which were used perhaps to uh, try and uh, justify uh, community uh, practices and, and certainly to give uh, a sense of a success story uh, that was being told in terms of uh, on both sides of Punjab of this massive dislocation involving probably 11 or 12 million people uh, crossing uh, the Punjab border and yet uh, this region was able to recover uh, from uh, this dislocation. And of course, the dislocation uh, had been created by violence, which had been endemic uh, in the region, certainly from March uh, 1947 onwards, and it left uh, large areas of uh, urban Punjab on both sides of the border um, sort of severely damaged. Uh, 10,000 houses and 
had been destroyed in Amritsar uh, in the period leading up to partition. 4,000 in Lahore, there'd also been great destruction in Multan. Uh, so you can see how um, partition is coming uh, on the top of uh, this earlier period. Uh, partition migration is coming on top of this earlier period of physical violence and destruction, which um, goes on for months leading up to partition. Uh, and indeed, of course, is a contributory factor uh, in uh, the decision at, at the higher uh, levels of politics to actually both partition India, but also to partition Punjab, uh, along with uh, the partition of India. So this is where the literature has, has sort of evolved, I think, over the last um, two or three decades. Uh, and in a sense, this literature uh, has helped to break down uh, some of the stereotypes uh, which were earlier uh, created about the partition experience. Uh, so, for example, looking at oral testimonies, uh, you very quickly come to the conclusion that uh, all communities had their victims, all communities had their aggressors. Uh, and, and the view which is sometimes expressed uh, in publications that, or demonizing a particular community, whether it's the Sikhs for violence against Muslims uh, in East Punjab, uh, or, or whether it's uh, in uh, East Punjab demonizing the Muslims and saying that it was Muslim violence uh, in West Punjab that merely led to retaliation uh, in East Punjab. So you can see how uh, these constructed narratives of partition are beginning to be uh, queried uh, by looking uh, from particularly a localized angle. Uh, and indeed, the emphasis is not just on the individual, but the research emphasis has been very much on localities. So there's been studies of, as I did, comparing uh, Lahore and Amritsar and the impact of partition uh, uh, and the lead up to partition in both of those neighboring cities, but there's also been work done on cities such as um, Lyalpur, modern day Faisalabad uh, in uh, Pakistan and Ludhiana uh, in Indian Punjab and comparing uh, and s uh, migrations in those two areas and, and seeing how uh, communities uh, reconstructed in some senses the economies in the different uh, post-border setting after migration. And there's been work on uh, other cities comparing uh, how they developed uh, in Pakistan, in Sialkot, Gujranwala, for example. Again, uh, looking at uh, the different trajectories uh, which communities and cities had uh, after partition. So all of this is, is building up a multi-textured and layered uh, understanding uh, of partition uh, which I think uh, is a major advance uh, on uh, some of the stereotypical uh, portrayals that dominated perhaps certainly into the 1980s, if not even beyond the 1980s uh, in writings in, in, in both countries. And, and I think that um, the final point I really want to make about uh, this is, of course, that understanding the two Punjabs in terms of what they were like before partition is very important uh, as well in terms of uh, contemporary relationships between India and Pakistan, uh, in terms of breaking down stereotypes, ensuring that there was a pluralism that actually worked, particularly in rural settings uh, and was disrupted 
uh, by the the politics uh, of uh, 1947 and led led to this massive dislocation. So the recovery uh, of uh, what Punjab was like uh, before partition, the recovery uh, also of um, these differences in terms of experiences in localities uh, amongst individuals and social classes and groups. All of this, I think, is uh, the trend forward uh, in, in partition studies uh, with, it, with respect to Punjab. And I've been talking about Punjab because that's the area I've worked on uh, ex, you know, over the last 30 or 40 years. But um, similar themes uh, are emerging if you look at other uh, areas of, of the subcontinent or other cities. If you look at cities like uh, Mumbai, Delhi, Kolkata, all of these cities, you see highly differentiated experiences uh, of, of refugee rebuild rehabilitation. Uh, also, if you look at other regions of uh, India, Sindh, for example, or UP, you see again, uh, perhaps interconnections, uh, which are, b- are there in Punjab in terms of migration. Uh, this has been brought out in a very recent publication, uh, Borders of uh, Belonging, uh, which looks at sort of that process. So that's the, really the state of play, I think, in terms of uh, the literature on partition. Thank you. Um, that's a pretty elegant summary. Um, I would, um, I'd like you to dive into um, a particularly interesting topic, which um, you you know very well and have written about, uh, and others have, which is uh, deconstructing the notion that um, it was a mass frenzy and a mass frenzy of killing by everybody against everybody which was part of the horror of partition. Partition had its horrors, its, its abrupt ones and its lingering ones, certainly. But this notion that um, certainly pervaded um, Indians, that is Indian citizens of the new India, was um, a, in the old ways of looking at it, uh, one that was so tinged with shame at how there had been so much killing and um, outrage. And uh, Yaakov, you can speak on the Pakistani side, but there's also this question of how could a society that had, you know, very, very wonderful religious and moral values um, get so consumed um, in this period from, well, let's say March of 1947 until easily the summer of 1948. And um, uh, you've looked at this from the Punjab standpoint. Uh, Ian, I was hoping you could say a little bit more um, about this from the precision that we now understand about how the violence was provoked and how it was directed. Yes, I, I mean, uh, the violence was, was not sort of irrational, spontaneous, frenzied killings. Uh, where violence occurred, it was very much um, with a political purpose directed for a, pati- uh, a purpose. Uh, some people would say ethnic cleansing. Uh, lay behind uh, a lot of the violence that that was uh, occurring uh, in the Punjab region uh, as people were, in in a way, trying to establish, and this includes the violence leading up to the publication of the Boundary War, establish their dominance uh, in a particular area. And and the way to do this was was through the use of violence. Uh, and I think that uh, a lot of the actual um, perpetrators of violence were um, paid goonders from um, criminal 
classes. They, they weren't always in ordinary individuals. Uh, there were ex-servicemen um, who had been trained. There were members of paramilitary organizations also uh, who undertook uh, violence. And all of this occurred within the breakdown uh, of um, functioning uh, administration. And I think that that's, in, that's important because it enables people to act with impunity. Uh, and that, that, I think, was a key factor uh, in the violence. So it's, it's a political uh, struggle for dominance. Uh, and obviously, um, each individual episode of violence might uh, have its own catalyst. And, and uh, you know, it might be the spread of rumours. It might be repaying old scores. Uh, off that is a factor in violence. It may be that it that it's a it's a particularly disturbed area anyway, uh, with with uh, large uh, criminality, uh, and that would be an interesting uh, way to look at it in future. To say were areas that had uh, high crime rates in the years leading up to partition were these areas that were particularly disturbed. I mean, obviously, people like Stephen Wilkinson has tried to link areas of uh, disturbance and violence with military service, active military service, during uh, the Second World War. Uh, but I think if you looked at some of the uh, first information reports from uh, police stations in, in areas which had high levels uh, of disturbance in uh, 1947, you might find that uh, some of the perpetrators of, of that were very well known uh, criminal gangs uh, you had a reputation uh, for um, sort of cattle lifting and other crimes perhaps uh, that was known to the authorities and they were in the pay perhaps of local uh, political groups who wanted to use them in order to try and um, access um, dominance within this particular territory so I think that, that that is very important. Um, the, 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 the incidences of violence, of course, are not uniform. You have uh, perhaps um, villages next to each other, one of which uh, has um, complete uh, massacre of population, the other which is unaffected. You know, you, you have uh, these uh, sort of differences uh, in uh, the incidence of violence and is that because of local histories is it because of who the local dominant groups are who might be able to squash violence others may not want to squash it because it serves their purpose uh, you know you may have all kinds of factors coming into play it may just be you know that um, outsiders uh, see a good opportunity to loot a particular community and, and have looked for that opportunity for a long time and um, with the breakdown of law and order and also I suppose they could present what they were doing in terms of um, having social and political support they take this opportunity uh, to um, to do looting uh, and repaying old scores so it's a very complex uh, process but it's not uh, that violence is everywhere if you look at uh, Melea Kotla, for example, there was no violence there and a, a large Muslim community in, this is within the Eastern Punjab area, that's a princely state, uh, sort of survived. Uh, so that, uh, that there are these sort of differences. And also if you look at oral testimonies, um, whilst there aren't as many uh, that uh, show individuals protecting people from another community, even at the risk of their own lives, these episodes do exist yes. uh, and uh, perhaps haven't been given the prominence 
uh, in uh, narration that they may be now likely to be given. So that, that there are all of these factors, I think, at, at play. So it's, it's a complex. There's always more work to be done, isn't there? Um, there's always more. There's always more work to be done. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you very much, very much for this, um, Professor Bagash. Uh, you will be um, speaking on. Um, well, a wide range of things. Um, and uh, what I would like to do in terms of um, our audience here is to say that, um, you know, historians of many um, periods in many countries in the last uh, 50 years have moved from the high politics to the particularities. It's not just um, South Asia that has been um, uh, subjected to this, uh, I think, very positive scrutiny. But it's a bit late in terms of how we were looking at, say, you know, British labor and the rise of um, the um, union movement in Great Britain. There was a whole historiography that basically was about turning over the rocks and seeing what was going on underneath. Um, and you um, have a very big um, talent for doing this, you know, for looking at foreground, background, what is revelatory that people haven't actually noticed before. And uh, so I'm very pleased that we can turn the floor over to you and have you speak from uh, your deep knowledge of the documents and the circumstances um, uh, from not just the Pakistan side, but from this side that was actually trying to make sense of and restore order in the very early days. So please, the floor is yours. Great. Uh, thank you very, very much, uh, Jennifer. And I'm um, quite happy to be back on uh, on, on the Mitchell Institute uh, uh, Institute's platform again. Um, I should just want to sort of, you know, sort of um, remember sort of uh, how I got interested in in partition, and it's actually related to you because it's your your visit to Pakistan a few years ago when when we first met uh, that actually sparked my interest because till that time I th I thought everything had been done on partition and you know there was nothing more to more to actually write on partition uh, because you know so many books and Ian's of course you know uh, uh, had done seminal work on it Gurapal Singh and and so many others uh, from the 1990s uh, as Ian points out uh, lots of people had looked at the at the sub subaltern aspect so so the high politics and the low politics everything had been done to a large large extent uh, so I thought okay it's done and dusted and then if you re remember we went to the Punjab archives and we went through those those rooms that no one had really looked into where things were just uh, uh, thrown wasn't, in. Wasn't and, that incredible? That was so incredible. Yeah, I know. I and, that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And and you know, I just you know, after your visit, and you know, when 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 we also were there, we just picked picked up random books and and began to look at them. Uh, so I continued doing doing that uh, in the months afterwards, and then saw that wow, there was lots of. There were lots of things uh, that weren't uh, part of the historiography of partition, and that people hadn't really worked 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 on. So after you know completely thinking that you know partition had been done and dusted, everything had been done. You know the last word on partition had actually been written. Uh, then I you know all of a sudden uh, ended up looking at at partition again. And by now actually I've I've, I've worked on three or four aspects that actually relate to partition, which we will of course uh, talk about uh, in the later times. But let me just pick up. From where kind of Ian left, uh, talking about the the violence, and I think what even in the high politics, and I think one of the things that has happened since the 1990s is that we have focused 
uh, very rightly on the lived experience, on the subaltern experience and how the common people kind of felt because that was completely ignored beforehand. One reason for that, of course, was at least on the Pakistani side that I saw was that a lot of people did not want to talk about the partition. It was too close in the 50s and 60s for them to actually talk about it. And it only takes up till about the 90s that people begin to kind of, you know, open up about it. Um, like I still remember from from my own family, like my mom, you know, she's, a, she's from that generation. She was in college at, at that time, but she doesn't really speak about the partition even even now and just says oh yeah, yeah let's just not not uh, not talk about it so a lot of people just never never did and i think it took a long time till they got to a certain age and they began to finally open up so at some le level the 80s opening up and the early 90s opening up was the right time in that sense too but i think what's happened uh, since then is that a lot of the high politics uh, and even the middle tier you know and i'll come back come back to it uh, has been 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 lost because no one now looks at the high politics. No one now looks at the middle 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 tier. The focus is solely on kind of a very locality based, uh, people based thing, which of course you know as uh, Ian has also mentioned and others have worked on, gives us a very useful uh, understanding of what happened at partition, but doesn't complete the picture. You know, I'll just give, give you uh, just a couple of interesting uh, examples which I just saw e even in terms of high politics. You know, um, as a lot of people have written that a lot of the partition violence began after the 15th of August. You know, that's when the ethnic cleansing really kind of kind of picked up. And I found it really fascinating when uh, just, you know, randomly looking at, at some material uh, that I found the very interesting correspondence, which I'm sure he knows really well, uh, between the governor of East Punjab, Sir uh, 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 Chandulal, and the uh, home minister of East Punjab, uh, Swaran Singh. And that was really interesting is that here the governor, the Indian appointed governor, uh, writes to the Home Minister saying, Muslims are being killed in large numbers in the Punjab. What are you actually doing about this? And the Home Minister doesn't reply. He writes again, doesn't reply. He writes a third time. Then he, he replies and says, well, it's, you know, it was bound to happen and doesn't really care about it. So I think one of the things which again has been kind of lost in this thing is, you know, as Ian very rightly said, it wasn't spontaneous and it wasn't that the people in power did not know. I actually think asking me to rather than saying that it was a breakdown of a law and order, it was a very planned breakdown of law and order. Swaran Singh could control this. Swaran Singh chose to look the other way. And he chose to actually say, I'm not really going to talk about this. I'm not going to prevent anyone from killing people. This is something that I kind of implicitly agree with. And I think that correspondence kind of very much show, shows about it, uh, shows that. In terms of migration, you know, uh, 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 people have worked on the migration from Lailpur, and I found it really fascinating is uh, that the migration from Lailpur, perhaps, you know, as far as I've read, might not have happened if the Indian High Commission had not insisted that that happened. Because they wanted pe people, you know, Hindus and Sikhs from Lailpur, which was actually a Hindu and Sikh majority uh, city, uh, go uh, to the other side so they could you know, send, send Muslims these, these, these ways. So a lot of the political high command and after the 15th of August, a lot of the governments on both East and West uh, 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 Punjab are very, very integral to what happens afterwards. And in some ways, it's very, very planned, very minutely planned. At some, you know, and the, and the third thing that I just wanted to highlight there is, is the role of refugees. Of course, very recently, uh, a lot of very good and interesting work has um, uh, come out on the refugees. But I really found it fascinating in one, in my sort of previous incarnation, I worked on the on the princely states and there i found it was fascinating that you know let's say this the princely state of bahawalpur nothing no violence had happened in bahawalpur 
till the arrival of refugees. And it was very interesting, Sir, Sir uh, uh, Pendril Moon actually mentioned this um, in his work, that as soon as the Muslim refugees arrived from East Punjab, they saw a Sikh and killed him. And that's how the violence kind of picks, pick, picks up even in a place like, like, like Bhawalpur. So there are lots of interesting uh, themes that I think really need to be still picked up in terms of the high politics, which actually inform a lot of what is happening on the on on the on the ground. And I think those kind of trends uh, really need to be now mixed up. I think we have done both sides in, independently, but that needs to be uh, uh, brought together. Now coming to the uh, interesting documents that I found on the floor of of that very interesting room that we saw about three three years ago, I think, uh, and that was really fascinating because one of the things which I which I saw was this uh, very interesting document called the Punjab Partition Council uh, and uh, 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 the the Punjab Partition Committee and its and its minutes, and what that really showed was that a lot of the discussion of how the Punjab was going to be split was. Uh, you know, had take, taken place. And what I found really fascinating is that very few works even mentioned it, let alone detailing what it did. Uh, it's really a footnote. It's really mentioned in, in, in passing because, of course, the Boundary Commission gets the bulk of the, of the, of, of the focus. And through that, through looking uh, uh, through that uh, document, uh, there were several important uh, elements of uh, the partition history that I think uh, the partition narrative that had actually uh, been forgotten. And I thought that, you know, uh, that must be uh, taken into consideration because that again show, shows us interesting elements of what was happening there. So the first thing there, of, of course, is the question of cooperation. And I found it fascinating that at the height of summer 1947, you had regional politicians working together to find, to amicably split the Punjab. And that, again, you know, again, you know, Ian's work and a, and a couple of other people have uh, pointed it out that it's not necessarily that what was happening in the center was being rep replicated in the provinces. And even Aisha Jalal actually writes about that, that, you know, the Punjab had really kind of taken partition as a given rather than having any active, proactive role in um, in uh, making it happen. But if you look at the partition committee, that actually shows that a lot of people were cooperating, a lot of people were agreeing on a number of things. And this was continuing throughout the summer as violence was picking up, there were still elements of agreement. And if I can just point out a couple of elements of agreement, and I really found them fascinating because you know, they'd been kind of mentioned uh, on and off somewhere, but no one had really uh, made a big deal about this. So for example, uh, both East and West Punjab had agreed that they were going to jointly take out, uh, 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 jointly have police training for a number of years. And this I found really fascinating. You know, police was uh, largely Muslim. It had been politicized to a large extent. And here you have the inspectors general of police from both East and West, West Punjab agreeing and saying, oh, in East Punjab, in uh, Philor, uh, they will do the training for, for a couple of years to come. And that's completely fine. Then, which was really fascinating was that electricity. Electricity was under a joint con control for nearly a year after, after partition. And I really found it fascinating that, it, that it's only kind of towards the middle of 1948 that East Punjab begins to realize, why are we giving electricity to West, West Punjab? They haven't paid us and you know, the whole thing then, then, then kind, of blow, uh, kind of blows up. But till that time, I found it fascinating that you know, from the Mandi hydroelectric dam, the main line comes through Lahore and then goes to each uh, through East Punjab. So that also shows us that, you know, yes, there was a line that divided them on the 17th of August, but that line didn't really become, you know, firm or anything for years to come. You know, it, it was a very uh, kind, kind of a fluid thing. And then the third thing, which is a very small thing, but I, but I still found it really fascinating, 
was that West Punjab is telling East Punjab that, oh, if you need a printing press, you can still use the printing press in Lahore. And this, why did I find it fascinating was that the East Punjab government was going to move to Simla where the government of India had their, had their printing press. So they could have easily said, well, now you are you know, going, going there, you can use the government of India as one. But they said, no, 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 no. If you really want a printing to be done, just send us your things and you can, and you can print, print this here. The same thing goes, you know, when I've uh, now done a whole article on it about Punjab University, they actually wanted to jointly run Punjab University till, of course, very sadly, the, the, the registrar of uh, Punjab University gets, gets murdered in Lahore. So there's a lot of cooperation that is actually taking place on the ground and the grand picture of these two parties or three parties for that matter in the in the Punjab at each other's you know sort of heads uh, that's true to a certain extent but at the regional level at the provincial level the politicians are are, are uh, cooperating uh, the the civil servants are cooperating and it's only when the violence just really takes off after the 15th of August and it becomes practically impossible to actually jointly work on a number of issues that a lot of issues end up in conflict. But even then, I really find it fascinating that it's really the summer of 48 that that umbilical cord is actually uh, cut. So I think that's a, that's a, that's a very... A very important thing to uh, to to look at. Uh, the other thing that, that, that the Punjab... Um, uh, uh, partition uh, committee shows us, and again, this is the first time uh, that local ICS officers, and you know, of course, that again is a very interesting discussion how they are ICS officers and the whole uh, uh, um, Punjab Carter, Carter thing, uh, which is another dis discussion. But this is the first time that Indian, Hindu, and Muslim ICS officers actually take over. And this is kind of, you know, uh, one of the arguments that I write in my paper is uh, that this is the setting up of these new states or East and West Pakistan in July 1947, because for the first time, they don't have a British ICS officer above them to whom they are reporting. And they are the ones who are actually just actually. Uh, actually making the final decision. So the chief secretary designate of East Punjab, the chief secretary designate of West Punjab, uh, on the one side a Hindu, on the other side a Muslim, they are the ones who are actually deciding and kind of really doing a very interesting procurement kind of a process for their new provinces and by extension, the new states. And the way they do it is also again, really fascinating that they agree on most of the, of, of the things. And it's only about four or five very contentious issues that they disagree on. And this again, you know, uh, 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 brings us into what uh, Joya, Joya Chatterjee, and it's, you know, very sad that uh, she is not here with us, with us today, uh, but she has called this a secularization of the, of the process. Uh, that where after a time, even though this is a very communal decision to, to uh, split the Punjab, but the process, in fact, if you look at the nuts and bolts of the, of the, of the process, that becomes secularized to a large extent. And this, uh, the way the Punjab was actually divided is I think a very good example of that secularization of the process. So yes, Hindus, Sikhs and Muslims all want to kill, kill each other. They are loggerheads. But then when you come to the, uh, uh, when, you, when you come to these uh, uh, civil, civil servants uh, and the actual nuts and bolts of dividing the Punjab, it's a, it's a very secular process. And it's a process to set up a new province. It is a process to set up a new country uh, 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 for that matter. And I think that again uh, has, has been, uh, 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 you know, not been actually dealt, dealt with uh, to a large extent. So these are the, you know, and I don't want to go on and on, uh, but, I, but I think there are certain strands in terms of how uh, partition was looked looked at uh, through this then you know the partition committee is is really the middle the mid the, like the middle tier uh, of 
the partition saga, which has been missing from our analysis, because we know the top politicians, we know the local local people. Well, what's happening in this middle tier? Because these are the real, you know, these ICS officers that uh, uh, that I've looked 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 at. These are the ones who are actually conducting the partition, but they're also being partitioned at the same time. And what's really fascinating is, and I've given examples of several uh, uh, cases, you know, several personal cases. Even they're very can confused also what's happening. So this is very fascinating to look at that, you know, all these different tiers, how they understand partition, uh, what is their part in it, and how do they affect it? And what is fascinating is these are the people who are affected perhaps by the end of it more than the central politicians, uh, but their narrative was just completely lost uh, up till this time. So, you know, uh, in the in the grand scheme of things, there, there are all these uh, different nuts and bolts that I think uh, if we begin to piece together even now, we'd be able to understand more about the partition and um, as Ian's actually uh, work has shown, um, understand how the new countries were actually set up and how actually East and West Punjab were set up. So, you know, the partition, you know, as 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 Wazir Azamidar has actually spoken about the long partition, you know, more from the perspective of, of the UP and by and my in migration, it's the long partition for both the Punjabs also, and I think that needs to be uh, recovered uh, to a large extent in the narrative. And I think there are these uh, uh, you know bits and pieces uh, which have not been looked at. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, it, it in um, the discussions we've had and what you've shared um, in your in your sense of the um, proceedings of the partition committee and then the council uh, suggests that uh, there's a a level of um, professionalism um, in this administrative class on both sides of the new order that is um, retained. And um, mutual respect, I mean, there is little sparks of acrimony in the minutes, but the minutes themselves are beautifully written and decorous and formal and polite. Um, and uh, it's that it, it contrasts markedly with what, to some extent, is perceived because of the high narrative or the people's narrative as one that is complete frenzy. I mean, this is these are people that are thinking carefully and talking carefully with each other. And um, if you could, if you could say a little bit more about Punjab University and why it turned out to be so complicated, and what and what the final solution was, at least in terms of the the ultimate solution, I'm not entirely sure. But but how they in in this these months of talking determined that in fact. This is not a divisible problem. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you for that, uh, Jennifer. Uh, well, Punjab University is is a really fascinating case because it is uh, one of the most contentious ones. And I always sort of thought and say, well, you know, they've agreed to split everything, uh, more or less. But why Punjab University? Um, and as far as I've I've been able to under understand, one of the main reasons why Punjab University becomes contentious is that it's one institution that rather than the government sets setting up, uh, a lot of the people had a role in setting it up and all three communities had a very integral role in setting it up because of course the whole history of, of uh, Punjab University goes back to the uh, Anjumani Punjab and you know this whole movement of setting up this vernacular university. And what is different about Punjab University is that it's the first university in uh, the British Empire, well in the British Indian Empire, uh, that from its inception 
examines in the vernacular languages and it's actually set up for the promotion of vernacular languages. Bombay, Calcutta and Madras never, never did that at that time. So there is this great sense of pride in terms of the people of the Punjab that we have set this wonderful university that not only uh, teaches English, but, but, but teaches in uh, Arabic, in uh, Sanskrit, in, in Persian and in Punjabi, of course. So I think that's that makes it a very special kind of an institu institution. Now, when it comes to splitting it, uh, of course, the Hindu and Sikhs uh, want this uh, split, and one side going to India, the Muslims want it kept on one side. Uh, it's a, it's a very long kind of a narrative, but the short version is that when they get um, legal advice from the Central uh, Partition Committee and the government of India, they say, well, it cannot be split because it is its own body, body, body corporate. Uh, but what uh, is fascinating about this is that the people who leave Punjab University, they go, go, go to India and they set up a parallel Punjab University. Uh, and they call it Punjab University. So if, if you go to, you know, and, and again, I, I, I really found it, found it fascinating uh, that if you go to the Punjab University Chandigarh's website, it doesn't even, you know, the, the short description they have doesn't even mention partition. It just says it began in Lahore and, you know, then it moved to, to Chandigarh without mentioning, well, actually there was a, this huge partition and, you know, uh, actually it did not move uh, to, to Chandigarh. Uh, and this is fascinating because a number of colleges, of course, moved. So, you know, there was a Laipur Khalsa College and there were a couple of other colleges that actually, you know, practically except for the physical buildings, the whole college moved to India. So, you know, the Laipur Khalsa College is still called the Laipur Khalsa College, even though it, it is now in East Punjab. But the Punjab University is the only one that actually both sides claim was set up exactly at the same time, 1882, uh, and both of them claim its legacy. And that I found was, again, a very particular kind of a Punjabi uh, narrative, so, so to speak. And I think that really tells you about how, even in this, in this middle tier, there was a sense of being Punjabi, and this Punjab University kind of exhibited that. And that is what was being, uh, being, being showcased. So this, you know, perhaps one can even call it this, this, this Punjabi resistance uh, to being split. Uh, for that, there was this one very small example of the, of, the, of the Punjab University. And they really tried. At the beginning, they really tried to have Punjab University on both, both sides. And it was very sad that uh, the registrar of Punjab University, uh, because he was a Sikh, uh, when he visited Lahore, uh, he was... Uh, stabbed to death actually right outside his his office. And that's when the East Punjab government decided, no, 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 we need to set something up completely. Uh, but before that, they, you know, they really were fine with the, with, with, with the university physically being, being at Lahore and then examining and even affiliating colleges on both sides. And, and what I really find, find fascinating is that in October 47, uh, they get a re-affiliation letter, uh, the university at Lahore, they get a re-affiliation let letter from a college in Jammu. Uh, and this is right before Jammu kind, you know, Jammu and Kashmir, like the whole kind of uh, battle over the state begins. So it's so it's really in interesting also from the idea of Jammu, you know, legally speaking, Jammu and Kashmir is an independent country by October 1947, but yet it still wants to affiliate with with uh, that that uh, that college still wants to affiliate with with Punjab University. So there are all these examples, and I think there must be more, you know, it's, 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 you know, from that heap of lots of documents, you know, I only picked up one document and I've ended up working on it for a number of years. Imagine, you know, what else is in there? You know, one of the other fascinating things, which I think if you remember, uh, were these fascinating deputy commissioner meeting minutes that were held uh, uh, every couple of months. And they even noted how many people were wandering in the streets 
you know, which I found really funny at one level and saying, how are they counting those people? Uh, so, so, so the refugees wandering in the streets, they even had a number about that. So this whole idea about really trying to understand what is happening uh, for this middle tier, trying to make sense of it and secularizing it and actually cooperating, you know, the level of, of, uh, of uh, cooperation between East and West Punjab, even after the massacres is I think to, and to some extent, very remarkable actually, uh, because, you know, they shouldn't be able to see each other's faces, but, you know, the meetings of the, of the Punjab partition committee, actually, you know, the last one is about 1958 or something. Exactly. So, 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 so it's really interesting that, you know, they keep meeting and they keep dis- discussing and they keep solving problems and there's still some issues and they go back and back and forth. And it's, and it's very interesting in how the, the, the two Punjabs at some level are integral to the split and are integral to the antagonism between India and Pakistan, but at the same level are actually interesting ex- examples of uh, cooperation in some uh, uh, some very important and and critical ways. So it's a it's a very mixed bag, as as Ian was actually saying. And I think we are still learning more and more about this, uh, even seventy three years down the line. Mm-hmm. I, I I agree, and I think I think it's good that you're both speaking this way because <clears throat> the sinews and the tissue that form the connections of the society across this arbitrary border uh, were very difficult to sever um, abruptly, and in many ways. Um, who wanted them to be severed um, is another question because there was a lot of anguish and, and um, um, enormous friendships and professional ties across this um, very complex country. I mean, this, this state of Punjab. And uh, it's, um, so there is um, a, a poignancy about the partition uh, committee and the council and the way you trace it, that I think there's a very good um, real, but also symbolic statement about what if, what might, um, how these people actually were behaving in their um, educated and responsible roles um, throughout this, this high level of violence and carnage. Um, I, uh, I, there are two and probably some more very good questions from the audience. So what I will say now for our um, next Um, move is can you keep your remarks to about five minutes about the second topic you want to talk about is that okay and then we will have some discussion between you the two of you and then I will open up for um, the response from questions to the audience is that okay so let's uh, so professor um, Ian Talbot it is back to you for um, five minutes of your next fast topic that you would like to cover Okay, thank you. Um, what I'm wanting to look at now is how the impending 75th anniversary of partition uh, will be uh, both commemorated and what its impact will be on uh, the historiography. Because a lot of these uh, anniversaries of partition have actually been periods of time when there's been a major rethink in terms of um, the understanding of partition. If you go back to 1997, uh, that's really uh, the time, the 50th anniversary, where people began to think seriously about history from below. And and I think it's not a coincidence uh, that 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 was the fact. So how are people going to look at partition uh, on the 75th anniversary? And I'm interested really in three particular areas, uh, which I'll cover very briefly. 
Firstly, I think that uh, there is still more work that can be done uh, on uh, how migrants uh, were able to recover uh, from the losses of partition and how their effective ties, uh, both with people from their own uh, district, who they may be living alongside, but also perhaps with officials who came from that district, how that impacts uh, on um, issues like uh, evacuee property, for example. Uh, and I think that, that that element could certainly be uh, a dimension that could be looked at in urban context and in a comparative way. You could look at how this operates, for example, in Delhi, how it operates uh, perhaps in Lahore, Amritsar, but also the way in which uh, it might operate in a totally different context, say in Eastern India, in Calcutta. You know, how do these ties actually, how are they op operationalized and, and how effective are they? Uh, are, are effective ties, in other words, effective in enabling you to um, resettle? Uh, that's the first thing which I, I think is of interest. The second thing uh, which I think uh, certainly is of interest to me is looking at the environmental aspects of partition, which really haven't been covered uh, that much. Uh, you get lots of accounts in personal testimonies of the dangers of crossing flooded rivers, uh, crisscrossing Punjab. You also get some accounts in newspapers of, of refugees who, when they've made it uh, to uh, their new home, actually uh, die when their house that they're in collapses under the pressure of the monsoon rains because the house has been damaged and they've got nowhere else, else to stay. You know, and there's um, a lot of uh, press recording around it, often about the anniversary of partition, partly because this coincides obviously with the, the, uh, the monsoon period. Uh, but um, I was reading um, quite recently actually about um, August um, 1948 and how 18 refugees uh, in a house that had been abandoned by Hindus in the Shalalmi area of Lahore, collapsed and killed them all uh, under the pressure of the monsoon rains. And as a result of this, 2,000 refugees stormed the Lahore Municipal Corporation uh, the next day and vandalized it in protest of uh, the fact that nothing was being done to uh, shore up these properties. And I think that that's an interesting uh, short-term um, sort of environmental aspect of uh, partition and it feeds into this whole issue of differential experiences. Why is it that some refugees are more vulnerable to environmental risk uh, perhaps than others? Uh, and I think that's an interesting question that could, that could be uh, looked at. Going forward, you could say, how did um, local government and urban planning responses to this mass migration unprecedented, 43% of the population of Lahore were refugees, 1951. How did they uh, respond to this? And did the um, planning uh, processes that they introduced actually uh, establish what might be called a kind of um, long-term sort of environmental vulnerability, which is being shown very much today, you know, uh, in terms of flooding, uh, at, at monsoon time, but also air pollution. You know, uh, how is the planning in response to this refugee influx? Uh, how does that create perhaps long-term 
problems. Uh, the other area I just want to very briefly mention, which is new technology, uh, which um, struck struck me when it was pointed out actually uh, by uh, Rakesh Ankit, a former PhD student of mine. He's talking about uh, Project Dastan, uh, which is uh, being launched initially from Oxford University and has Yasmin Khan, uh, who I'm sure Yakub knows very well, uh, as, as one of its uh, sponsors, you know, and, and, and this is a project which is looking forward to the 75th anniversary in terms of wanting to undertake 75 interviews uh, with uh, partition survivors, as they call them, but it then wants to take uh, these people back to their childhood locations through the use of virtual reality technology. Uh, and, and this project is also aimed at setting up an interactive virtual reality documentary experience, which will put the viewer uh, in the shoes of a 1947 migrant. Uh, and, and the aim is to distribute uh, this to film festivals and museums. And the final element is obviously uh, a documentary for um, younger members of the diaspora uh, who are very interested in partition and, and in the migrations uh, of uh, their, their grandparents, uh, but who really don't know anything about it. And it's a means of uh, introducing them uh, to um, the lived experience uh, of, of partition. So in a sense, that this is a, a, an academic come activist project using new technology uh, in order really to further some of the aims perhaps of the new history, which I was talking about, you know, which has emerged in the past three decades. So I think that's something that's very interesting as we look forward to 1970, uh, to the 75th anniversary it's in 2022. Fascinating, it's excellent. Yeah. And new technologies are, being used in a number of ways in terms of crowdsourcing and um, it, it's a uh, I, I would just say this last one with the virtual reality somebody should do a human subjects review of it though in terms of how shocking it might be to these old people mm -hmm. to have a virtual reality so mm -hmm. that will need to be carefully curated yeah. I would but mm -hmm. give uh, that I'm sure is occurring to the people who are doing this and it's a it will be just riveting um, thing to to have for the 75th yeah, thank you, Ian. Uh, so, Jakub, uh, five minutes um, about the topic you were prepared to talk 10 or 15 minutes about, but if you could sort of collapse it a bit, that would be wonderful. Sure, sure of course. Uh, well, I just want to begin, so I'll just speak on two, two, two things. First is from where actually Ian uh, left, left off the issue of uh, technology. Uh, of course, a, a lot of people are are using it, but I want to kind of you know uh, see it in in the broader picture, um, and actually sort of fore, foreground this in a discussion. And and again, you know, because the seventy fifth anniversary of uh, partition is coming up, uh, foregrounded this in this whole discussion on um, the whole partition industry that has kind of developed. Uh, you know, and I think that's a really fascinating topic. I actually see on the on the participants list, uh, 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 Dr. Pippa Verdi, and you know she's been 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 working on it for a couple of months, uh, from what I hear, and she has actually uncovered. Uh, you know, she's one of the things that she actually talks about, and I think it it is very interesting in how it's kind of mimicked uh, memory and Holocaust studies. 
um, and how these different strands are actually coming coming together. So people are using family histories to no end. Uh, people are talking about you know lived experiences. Now we have AR, AR, VR coming in. You know what does it mean to actually have this partnership industry, and what effect does it have on how we look at partition? and remember partition. And I think these are very important questions that as the 75th anniversary and you know, start to say, I think probably frenzy that will take over. Uh, you know, what is it actually doing to the field? What is it actually doing to research? Uh, what is it actually doing to reality and our imagination of it? You know, I'll just point out one thing uh, that, uh, that that Dr. Verdi also looks at is that a lot of these interventions, these new interventions are actually not by people in either East or West Punjab, they are by the diaspora. So that's a very interesting way of looking at it, that actually people in East and West Punjab, you know, and I used to go now, of course, because of Modi, I don't go that much, but I used to go to Indian Punjab, like, you know, every couple of weeks for that matter, uh, every, you know, every other month. And, you know, we get along with, the, with, the, with, the, with each other, we had good chats and we connected people across the borders. But we didn't really think about these things in these ways that the diaspora think, thinks about. So the whole effect of diaspora thinking now kind of, you know, doing the work for us, so to speak, what does that mean? You know, so all these kinds of ancillary questions, I think, as we look towards 75 years, and I think these kinds of interventions will only increase, you know, crowdsourcing, you know, all these other kinds of things, these will only increase. What does that really do? And I think one needs to be a bit careful about that and really kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, be... Uh, very circumspect about what it's actually doing to the field and uh, to research. So I think that's one sort of large thing that I just, just wanted to highlight and uh, uh, um, sort of move on from. Uh, the, the second thing that I really want to talk about, and this is something which, I, which I'm doing currently, so I, so I don't have a kind of a final uh, end product there, is that I'm working on how, uh, Pucks, uh, how Indian Christians actually looked at the partition. Um, and I picked this up because I think the only thing that's really been written on Indian Christians and, and partition was actually in a in a in a uh, in an edited volume. And I think he must have been a student of Ian's, uh, a graduate student of Ian's that actually wrote wrote about it using the Mount the uh, the Mountbatten papers. And I thought, wow, you know, that's it, really. Uh, so you know, I was just got got interested in it and really began to look at it. And what I really want to do there is to actually bring not just the narrative in terms of partition, but then also bring it into what happened to them in East and West Punjab in the period immediately following partition. Now, why am I doing uh, why am I doing it? Well, for, for the most part, because uh, yes, there were Hindu, Sikhs and Muslims in the Punjab, but uh, in Northern India, Christians uh, uh, were the largest, uh, uh, well, the province that the Christians were the largest number in Northern India was the Punjab. And there were about half a million uh, Christians in the, in, in the Punjab at that time. So that's, you know, one dem demographic thing. Uh, secondly, that the impact on the development of the Punjab, I think, was exceptional. Uh, there was hardly a district in the Punjab that did not have a Christian school, a Christian dispensary, uh, or any kind of missionary uh, presence. Uh, and that made them kind of their impact uh, larger than their numbers. Um, and what I really found fascinating is that, again, in the history of the, of the partition, they are kind of seldom mentioned. So I think that was a very interesting kind of, kind of gap there. And where in terms of West Punjab, I became very interested is that uh, 50, 60 years down the line, I think it kind of began about 40 years down, down the line, lots of myths began to emerge about uh, Christians and the, and the partition. So I'll just speak of one, one myth. Uh, one big myth about uh, uh, Christians and the partition was that this uh, leader of one of the Christian, Christian groups, uh, Devan Bahadur S.P. Singha, uh, very in interestingly, the whole name is Satya Prakash Singha, which of course shows that he's from uh, Hindu descent. Um, he votes for, for Pakistan 
during the partition proceedings. And the myth then emerged about 30, 40 years after partition. And of course, the, the, the guy actually dies a few months after partition. Uh, but then a myth emerges that it was his casting vote that actually led to the creation of Pakistan. Now, you know, a lot of Christians in Pakistan believe it. That is part of their foundational myth, that that is how they are full members of Pakistan. Uh, and a lot of them get very annoyed and angry when I actually show them the, 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 the proceedings of the Punjab Assembly and say, yes, he did vote for uh, with, with, with the Muslim League, but that the difference of numbers was so much that it didn't make a difference. Um, and they get really angry and they were like, no, 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 but this report must be false. You know, this, this report of the Punjab Assembly is wrong because, you know, my father told me that that's the case. So I really found it fascinating that in West, West Punjab, uh, the Christians had to come up with this foundational myth about how they took part in the Punjab, uh, in, the, in, in the creation of Pakistan and, in, and the partition of the Punjab would not have happened without their agreement, which is, you know, which is a, which is a myth. So then I began to get, get, get interested in why is this, is this the case? And I'm currently working on it. Um, another very interesting incident that, that actually comes up in the, in the Punjab. And again, you know, Ian was actually talking about how these migrants kind of uh, habilitate themselves in this different environment. So, so it's very much uh, connected to it is that when uh, these East Punjab Muslims uh, come to West, West Punjab and take over from, you know, Hindu, Hindu, uh, and take over Hindu and Sikh lands. A very interesting thing happens that a lot of Christians who are working on these lands get thrown out because only the Muslims are supposed to be there. Now, you had all these Christians who were very pro-Muslim League. But come January 1948, and S.P. Singer actually, actually talk, talks about it, and they're actually thrown out because they are not Muslims and only Muslims have a right to now exist in the, in the Punjab. So it's very interesting in how this whole kind of, you know, and, and it's a, not an inconsiderable number of Christians. You know, there are, are thousands of what these people are called Mazaras that are actually thrown out. And this becomes a huge issue. And then they become uh, refugees in West Punjab, even though they are from West, West, West Punjab. So, so that becomes a very interesting um, you know, uh, side of the of of the whole uh, Christian debate. The third side, uh, which again is is really fascinating, and I only kind of uh, realized it a couple of years ago when I went to Sialkot, was that a lot of the outcasts, so the lower caste, the untouchables, uh, when they realized that while well, partition is going to happen, they were sort of you know weighing their options which side they they they'd be good at. And of course, if they went to East Punjab, they'd still be untouchables. So a lot of uh, for uh, uh, the untouchables in um, in Sialkot, for for example, on the eve of partition and just just afterwards, become Christians, uh, and that again is is really 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 fascinating because that's the you know that's purely a political uh, conversion, nothing to do with religion, and a lot of them keep practicing their old religious religious practices. And I found this really fascinating. I, I think it was about two or two or three years ago when I went to Sialkot, um, actually with Dr. Verdi and a couple of other other colleagues, just looking through gurdwaras. And in one of the gurdwaras, Beri Saab, there were all these Sikhs Sikhs there, and we we're like. Why are so many Sikhs in Sialkot? We never thought there were hundreds of Sikhs in Sialkot. Well, these were the people who, because of partition, had converted. Uh, the, these, these were kind of lower caste Hindus who had converted to Christianity. And now, because they had realized that, uh, that you know, after 50, 60 years, uh, that uh, Sikhism was very acceptable in Pakistan. In fact, Sikhism was very much, much, much promoted in Pakistan, that they had now become Sikhs. So this, you know, agency uh, of these untouchables uh, during the time of partition is, I think, really, really, really fascinating. So these are the kinds of things that I that I think, again, you know, are these are, are these gaps in 
in uh, partition uh, work uh, that are, that are still to be to be ex- to be explored. You know, these are these are Dutchables. Uh, you know, it was very fascinating in how they actually maneuvered them themselves. And then you know. Um, um, as uh, actually Ian's work also shows that Gurapal Singh's too and a couple of others, that a number of times when violence was actually taking place, a lot of Christians or these, you know, recently converted Christians would put a cross outside their house to say, we are Christians, don't kill us. And they'd be saved, you know. So it's very interesting in how these kind of lower castes are actually using their, you know, using a particular religion, uh, one, not to die, uh, and then to maneuver in the new country they are in to get to certain cert, certain positions and how in 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 the recent past just just a few years ago they've now moved to another religion because now that religion is kind of a privileged minority religion in Pakistan so it's not again you know again the question of what happened at the time of partition or even the couple of years beyond that you know I'm talking about 2017 and 18 uh, and how things that happened at the time of partition are are still developing and are still taking taking shape. Good. It's going to be a very rich exploration. Um, and livelihoods will be very important in terms of who is designated to be a farmer. Um, and uh, this is, you know, the livelihoods of Christians and poor Muslims um, collided in several settings that you've referenced. Um, I think um, I'm now going to change course again for both of you. You might as well. Um, and, um, I have no idea what time it is for you both, but um, thank you for doing this. Uh, there are several um, very good questions from people who are staying with us. And uh, so I would like um, to start from the top and not have a discussion between and among the three of us, um, but get to the questions because people have asked some very good ones. Is, is that okay with both of you? Um, we do that? Okay. Um, uh, you could object, but um, I think we should do this. All right. So I'm going to start with uh, one. Um, so I, I'm not sure um, this plays exactly to what either of you are studying, but uh, one question is about the Cold War and uh, why um, the British were interested in having um, Pakistan succeed that is success succeed um, as a, a buffer against what they termed or they were worried about as leftist movements in India. And um, I'm not sure that that is um, how this, the question really is characterizing it, but um, yes, it is actually, that's what it is. So um, in terms of, you don't have to take that summary of what the motives were, but as the early cold war, uh, which was really, um, heating up in 47, uh, 46 even, but 47, 48. Um, I know that the British uh, were really interested when they were figuring about whether partition was going to happen <clears throat> and the division of the subcontinent. They basically looked very carefully at who had come in as a foreigner into India, subcontinent India, um, and looking for um, radicals, terrorists, subversives, anybody from Eastern Europe, um, certainly anybody from Germany, uh, any, anybody from China was closely scrutinized in terms of their political valence within the Indian subcontinent. And this is early on. This is in uh, late 1946, early 1947. Uh, so there clearly was an edge of the British um, high po- political mind that was concerned about the Cold War. Uh, and brief, brief responses. Um, if I could ask of each of you, and one of you can go first. Um, let's, let's reverse here and have 
Yaku, go first, and then I'll ask Ian, and then we'll go to the next question. But brief, please. Uh, okay, I think Ian knows a lot more about this because he has actually done uh, just uh, finished work on the British High Commissions in both India and Pakistan. So he is very much plugged into um, what happens in the Cold War. But my short answer with that is uh, my only real understanding of, of that is from, from this large book writ written by uh, Sarila about a decade ago, I think. Uh, and that was the big claim being, being made there. I don't really think that the Cold War thing was that important at that moment. Uh, it was at the back of their mind, yes. Uh, but the whole argument, and I think some people have, have pushed it, that, the, that, that Pakistan was, was created as this pro-British bastion of, of the Cold War. I think that's just later, late, late, later thinking that's been uh, projected back, backwards. Um, I don't think it was really important at that time. Um, I didn't, don't think they really cared about it to that extent at that time. You know, one example, if, if I may uh, give there, is that the Americans didn't even appoint an ambassador to Pakistan for, for about a year. So if Pakistan was that critical uh, as a frontline state for the Cold War, at least the Americans uh, should have had someone here immediately. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I would doubt that, uh, but I think Ian can shed a lot more light, more light on it. I could be com completely wrong here too, but I think Ian can speak on it. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, as far as the Cold War is concerned, uh, the British looked at this in terms of a continuation of the great game. Uh, and certainly they wanted the security and stability of, of um, the north of India. Doesn't mean to say they wanted Pakistan to be created as a bastion, which is what Cyrilla argues. But certainly once Pakistan came into being, uh, those who, uh, not just uh, diplomats, but also the pro-Pakistan group within the British cabinet, as opposed to the pro-India group, uh, were very concerned that, that Pakistan might collapse. Uh, and if it did collapse uh, after independence, uh, then that would have serious strategic uh, issues for Britain. And also, of course, you could say that the original intention for common defense uh, of the subcontinent by uh, India and Pakistan was again perhaps a response to an awareness that in future there might be uh, uh, a problem, you know, and that the subcontinent as a whole needed to, uh, to be strong and to be stable. So I think that's where it comes into it, you know, in terms of uh, British diplomacy and, and strategic thinking. But, but certainly Cyrilla is, is off, the, off the mark, you know, in terms of arguing that uh, Pakistan was deliberately designed by Britain in order to be uh, a bastion uh, of its influence. I think it was more the fact that once the British had conceded uh, the notion of partition, that they wanted uh, some defence link-up between India and Pakistan. I think, that, I think that's important. Thank you both. Um, another question um, starts at a level of generality that um, I'd like you to dive into quickly and deal with. Um, uh, and Ian, I'll start with you on this. Um, it is, it's sort of um, what motivated people in Pakistan and India to migrate? Um, I don't think it's, um, it's an unformed question. I think it is the point that there are a lot of people that didn't move. And um, certainly, um, if you get out of the Punjab, there are a lot of people that didn't move. There are a large number of Muslims in India and and in Pakistan, um, you know, certainly as Jinnah was proceeding, there were, was going to be room for a very diverse number of different kinds of people initially. Um, so um, with that as the background, um, we all three of us know, and I'm sure the 
person asking the question knows that there was um, enormous violence and fear. Hmm? But, but could you say something, each of you, that is a little bit more fine-grained than that? What motivated people to leave what is now Pakistan and vice versa? What motivated people to leave what is now India? I think, I mean, if you're looking just at the Punjab region, of course, uh, uh, the two states um, virtually through the uh, military evacuation organization orchestrated an exchange of population, uh, which I think Yakub mentioned earlier meant that people, you know, like the Sikh uh, colonist in Lyapur, uh, who didn't really want to move necessarily, had no choice but to. So it, it's in a sense, after the chaos of the first two or three weeks and the massacres and the failure of the boundary force to maintain order, then the two states, as far as Punjab are concerned, uh, try and um, sort of organize population uh, movements uh, in order to uh, ensure both the safety of minority populations, but once these get underway, you know, it, it's in order to move people out, uh, to provide um, accommodation, businesses, land, that incomers, refugee incomers, are able to take up. Uh, that's the Punjab situation. Um, in Bengal, it's a very different uh, process. I mean, migration doesn't happen in either acute circumstances of violence or orchestrated um, state act actions. The, both the government of India and the government of Pakistan, you can see this in the Liaquat Nehru Pact in 1950, really didn't want people to migrate uh, in that part of the subcontinent and wanted them to return, if at all possible. Uh, and, and that creates a very different context. But of course there are, whenever there are sort of communal riots or whenever there's tension, between India and Pakistan. That certainly raises concerns of the Hindu population of East Pakistan. So you have this sort of a wave after wave that goes on, you know, for a decade or more, two decades, you know, of, of migration in Bengal. And it's, it's often not even the result of uh, violence, but more the threat or fear of violence or the fact that they feel that their status uh, has been undermined and they, can, and they can't maintain a respectable life anymore in the way that they wanted to. So they, they, this is, I'm talking about the Badrilok class in, uh, in East Bengal, so that, that they might consider moving. So I think you've got to look at this in terms of different regions. Uh, we go to Sindh, also again, there's a very different migration pattern there uh, than in Punjab, you know, with uh, certainly uh, throughout all the violence in Punjab, there's still a large uh, Hindu Sikh population in Sindh. And I think as Yakub mentioned earlier in one of his comments, you know, it's often the arrival of refugees uh, that actually disturbs uh, these quite settled populations who may not want to, to, uh, to move as such. So you have to look at different regions and see, I think, different motivations. But I think on the whole, obviously there were some people who wanted to move who were drawn by the Pakistan ideal uh, to, to move to Pakistan. But I think for many communities, their identity was vested in their ancestral land and village. Uh, so they wouldn't leave that behind easily. Uh, they would only do this, you know, under some kind of duress, whether it's the state organizing an exchange of population, whether it's violence or whether it's the threat of violence or status reversal. I think all of those things come into play. Fear, fear was a very big motivator for mm -hmm. a lot of the Muslims across northern India. Um, yeah. And... Uh, Jinnah was, Jinnah didn't want 
all the Muslims that were coming from, you know, Bihar and uh, Uttar Pradesh, uh, because he was aware of the resettlement problem um, very much. Um, and Nehru was astonished and hated the idea, but they couldn't stop it, really. It was so, um, but I think you did a very fine-grained way of liming the, the range of the categories of motivation. Um, Yakub, from your perspective. Yeah, just just to add to what Ian um, has said, I think I think um, you know if you compare uh, uh, the Punjab and Bengal, I think one big factor, and I think that's where you know squarely uh, the blame perhaps uh, comes to on on Mountbatten, is the fact that uh, he did not consider the big sort of problem on on the on the on the Punjab side, the Sikhs. Uh, he just completely ignored it. Uh, didn't think that they were a big, a big issue, didn't think they'll actually blow up as a community. And that's exactly what happened. And I think that was the main distinguishing factor between the Punjab and Bengal, that whereas in Bengal, it was Hindu and Hindu and Muslim, uh, in the Punjab, there was a big community that was dissatisfied, that was going to be dissatisfied, regardless of what the boundary, where, where the boundary was going to be. And that, I think, remains a very, uh, you know, that remains uh, one of the big indictments of Mountbatten, that he just did not take that into consideration. You had the governor of, of the Punjab repeatedly writing to him and saying the Sikhs are arming them, themselves, Muslims are arming in return, uh, the RSS is, is actually doing things, what do you think we should do? And Mountbatten is very nonchalant about those things. Like, well, you know, it'll be taken care of at some point or, or the other. And I think that's one big thing. I, I'll just give, give you one example of how the Sikhs were actually uh, thinking about it. You know, uh, just a couple of, you know, just uh, last, last year, Pakistan opened this big Kartarpur corridor uh, linking the last, the last resting place of uh, Guru Nanak, uh, you know, the, the, the founder of Sikhism uh, with India. Now, I went there a couple of years ago, and again, I, I was fascinated that it's only about, you know, two and a half miles from the, from the border, and it's only farmland. So I wondered, you know, why didn't the Sikhs just say, you know, just cut it across a little bit and, you know, get some farmland on the other side and then take it. The reason they didn't do it or didn't really care about it was because they wanted the Chinab as, as the boundary. So the question of Kartarpur just didn't emerge because their boundary was, you know, hundreds of kilometers on the other side. So you had this community that had this bizarre idea that somehow Chinab is going to be the boundary and all these colonists were actually going to be in East, in East Punjab. And no indication was given to them that that's never going to be the case. And that is why they actually blew up. And I think that's the big failure of Mountbatten. And I would really personally, I think... A lot of the thing is it's his person who ignored this, who ignored the warnings of the deputy commissioners, uh, the uh, the uh, superintendents of police, the governor. All of them were writing to him saying this is going to blow up, and this, and then it did blow up, and that is what uh, actually led to a lot of of the violence. Um, and I think so. I think that's one one side of it. The other side is a lot of it was actually. Um, uh, you know, sort of uh, settling of old scores and everything that that, that Ian talks about. But here, um, I also want to uh, sort of plug in uh, the work of Ian Copeland, where he's worked, uh, where he showed uh, that in places like uh, the princely states of Patiala and Alwar and, and all these other places, it was a very planned execution of Muslims. You know, that was very well planned. They really wanted Muslims either dead or outside their, their princely states. And I think that's another gap that no one really thought about, oh, there are all these princely states, uh, places like like Patiala and Kaputla, and, and, well, Kaputla at least escaped, uh, uh, you know, a bit and, and, and Malay Kotla completely. But then there were all these other Sikh states that had large number of Muslims in, in them. What is going to happen, happen there? And it's really led by the Maharaja of uh, Patiala that actually a real pogrom uh, happens against the Muslims. And so, you know, in those small bits, that's really um, kind of a, 
a very planned and in some is very efficient uh, kind of ethnic cleansing, religious cleansing. And then that sets a, a whole chain in motion. And I think that kind of one thing adds over, over the other. And as Ian very uh, uh, aptly said, that by October, November, when the MCO kind of uh, the military evacuation comes up, um, then they have no choice. You have to just, 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 just clean both sides because you know people are coming across. And I would say that what distinguishes the Punjabi Mohajar, so to speak, from from the UP one is that the UP one actually moved for, for ideological reasons to what is now now Pakistan. You know, they wanted to come to this Pakistan with whatever, however they imagined it. But the Punjabis actually thought, well, maybe it's for a short time. Maybe we will come back. Uh, none of them, I think, really thought that this is going to be a permanent thing. So I think there are all these dis distinctions that are that are there. And of course, the, the violence was taking place, uh, you know, as I said earlier, under the nose of the governments, because after a, a, after a while, you need space uh, for all the incoming refugees, you know, on both sides. So then it becomes kind of faith accompli after uh, a couple of weeks. And by that time, you know, is it motivated? Is it not really doesn't, you know, those those kinds of uh, combinations and permutations, I, I, I think, change uh, to a large extent. So <clears throat> thank you both. Now, you're, now we're going to have to be very brief because uh, we've got only six minutes left. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> there are a number of good questions. So uh, uh, one, one question is, um, were there gender dynamics to this um, whole migration, the killing, <clears throat> the uh, ways in which it was viewed from the authorities. Um, this is a vast question. There have been many books. Um, but uh, two sentences, Ian, from you, and two sentences from Jakob on this question about gender dynamics. Yes, I, I mean, I think, obviously, Ulvashi Butali's sort of pioneering work uh, brought out the gender dimension and then writers like Ritu Menon and others, you know, in, in terms of how uh, women were particularly vulnerable uh, at this time because they were seen as uh, the upholders of community honour uh, and that they could uh, suffer not only assault from uh, rival communities, but even from their own families you know, in order to protect the family honour. So the vulnerability of women, I think, is, is important. I think another thing which has come out in the literature is that perhaps the way women remember their testimonies are different, uh, perhaps, to men. Uh, they, they, they may uh, talk more about family issues rather than about the bigger political picture. That's one of the things that came out in some of the interviews, you know, that I was conducting uh, way back, you know, 15, 16 years ago. You know, that, that, that there's a different voice uh, coming across. So there's a gender dimension. How partition is represented uh, is different perhaps for women than men. Their vulnerability uh, is also, I think, very different. And then the final thing is that, uh, to the point that Aisha Jalal makes, you know, that uh, when we're looking about um, opportunistic violence as opposed to politically motivated violence, then um, seizing women from the other community uh, as well as land, you know, was a big motivating factor. And of course, that then led to what we reckon is 100,000 women abducted. You know, and, and then there's the whole business about bringing them back and what that says about uh, the way in which they're viewed in the patriarchal society. But I'll, pa I'll pass over to Yakub. Yeah, they were became political pawns. In, in yes, they did. Yeah. yeah. Yakub, please, but briefly. Um, yeah, uh, well, I, I think Ian has uh, said this mostly. Um, uh, one addition that I'd just like 
to make is that, you know, uh, going through those piles of uh, documentation, we actually found a very interesting collection of letters uh, that was sent by the abducted women back home. Um, and of course, as we know from the work of Urushi Batalia and, and, and Ritu Men and, and others, uh, that a lot of these uh, recovered, you know, so to speak, recovered, again, all this terminology is also very interesting. Uh, their own families refused to accept them. Uh, and then a lot of them en en ended up in brothels and, you know, uh, street prostitution, all these other kinds of things. So, you know, there was a lot of fallout with what was happening at that time. But I, but I think, again, uh, the, whole, the whole process and then, again, a lot of them just, just converted and uh, remained as Muslims or Hindus or, or, or whatever on either side. And I think so uh, that's, that's, again, something that, you know, we know the general narrative, but I, but I think, uh, again, the locality uh, level work would be very interesting there. Thank you. Thank you both for that. <clears throat> I mean, the gender dimensions are present in every instance of forced migration, uh, and they reflect the societies from which the people are moving. And uh, the women in partition um, were, as you both noted, were ironically treated as precious vessels that had to be saved. Um, and that meant sometimes that the husbands would put the women down the hill, down a, a well before they fled uh, so that they would not be raped. Um, and then you had women who had a sense of agency or practicality who would say, I don't want to go back. You know, it's, I've not been settled. It's been two years. I'm here. Um, it's over, you know, so it's a, it's a very complicated and fascinating story. Uh, so, um, there's, a, a one dimension we haven't talked about, and I'm going to now lead to the, um, the summation and just, I, I know you both agree because you've hinted at it, um, which is that, um, this, uh, this debacle, uh, this tragedy, I mean, the pity of partition is that it didn't need to have happened and that there were a large number of British authorities on both sides of what turned out to be the, I'm um, talking now about the Western border, um, who, who were writing to um, uh, the Delhi and who were writing to each other, speaking about the rising tide of um, distress and violence, and this whole notion of what the British <clears throat> um, uh, commissioners would would be looking at, which they would call criminality, it was various you know um, um, terms. Um, they missed the ethnic dimension as it began to become um, intercommunal rather than a threat to their own authority, and Mountbatten um, completely missed what was going on. I mean it. it he, and you know, he really lost interest in the Indian subcontinent by May of 1947. And uh, that is, um, in retrospect, um, a criminal failure of leadership um, because you had very good British authorities and Indian authorities, I mean now subcontinent Indian authorities, saying this is going to be a nightmare unless you can control it, you can stop it, and he didn't. So I feel that the culpability, if there is one for such a huge, massive event, and for historians, that's not a very good way of looking at it, you know, culpability, I respect both of your points, but that um, it's a, the British um, need to own up to a great deal of responsibility. I'm not collectively, but the leader they had chosen um, and some of his advisors, not all of them who are excellent, but some of them um, allowed this to take place. Uh, and so it is a, an act of inaction that is um, an important thing for us to recognize. Uh, uh, so all of you have had, I think, um, a pretty good insight in some of the um, 
major historical issues, the news of what is now ahead of us in terms of the 75th anniversary and what things to look for, um, some deep history, some general trends and themes. Um, both of our historians today are really steeped in the documents, the oral narratives, um, and the, the history more generally of the subcontinent. And uh, I, I want to thank them extremely for their contributions and their energy and um, their, their engagement and uh, their alacrity in responding to different shifts in what the program is going to be. Um, and I want to thank you as uh, listeners and members of the audience for participating with us for um, this period of time and for the excellent questions that you asked. And I apologize in advance for not getting to many of the very good ones. But um, this is now time to sign off. And uh, I thank you, Professor Talbot. Mm -hmm. I thank you, Professor Bangash, for your wonderful um, participation today. And, uh, the, and I respect greatly the work that you both are doing. Um, in the past, now, and into the future. So with that, I would like to say goodbye to the audience, goodbye to both of you, and uh, we look forward to engaging on this topic, perhaps not in this exact venue, but this is something the Middle Institute is very interested in for the longer term, as you, as you both know. So thank you, and um, thanks to the audience for joining us. Goodbye. <laughs>